Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, this is part two of two on the early creeds of Christianity. And Ken, maybe you can give us a, a recap of what uh, you introduced on the first podcast and then lead us on into the second one. Yeah, we were uh, talking previously uh, about uh, these creeds, uh, confessions and hymns that New Testament scholars have discovered uh, appear to be weaved into uh, by, by the apostles Peter and Paul. Uh, they weaved into uh, their particular writings, and, and here I'm thinking of of uh, Philippians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1, 1 Peter 3. We'll look at those uh, in a little more detail in this program. But what is fascinating is that uh, these appear to be hymns or creeds, or creeds or confessions, and they're much older than the books in which they appear. And so, you know, if Philippians was written in the 50s, um, if Colossians was written in the 50s or 60s, if First Peter was written in the 50s or 60s, actually these creeds, hymns, and confessions are much earlier and may have actually been sung or recited uh, with, within a year of the uh, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's the, the kicker. They have an exalted view of Jesus Christ. That is, the passages that speak of Jesus as divine and having divine prerogatives, they're the earliest. Uh, they emerged, as uh, Larry Hurtado, a New Testament scholar, says, uh, like a volcano, they came immediately and abrupt. So that's the topic we've been addressing. And why it's such an important point is because it undercuts, it refutes uh, the liberal progressive view that it took centuries uh, to move away from a merely human Jesus and evolve to a divine Jesus. I think what you just said is very helpful, especially for people who are students or no students, family members are students, because uh, what you're going to get at a typical university might be something along the lines of Jesus was a great teacher, a wonderful prophet, but uh, he certainly wasn't divine. And we have uh, evidence of that in scholars like Bart Ehrman and, and others. So I don't know if you want to comment on that, but yeah. that's what you've been responding to. And that, that I think that's helpful. This, this has significant apologetic takeaways. And I, I want to, a little bit later in the program, uh, you know, communicate those uh, very carefully. Uh, Dave, comments before we look a little more at these creeds and hymns? No, I think this is good. Just keep going. Okay. Well, let me, let me again take us back to this idea that uh, uh, many New Testament scholars believe that Peter and Paul in particular uh, weaved into their uh, epistles uh, various creeds, confessions, or hymns, uh, and that they go back to the earliest form of Christianity. And, and, and I, I want to use, I intentionally use the word primitive, because this is long before the church had any Gentile members. 
this presses us back right to the, be, the beginning of what would become the uh, Christian movement. Now, some people are going to say, well, how do you know this? How do you, how do you know that you have these hymns? Like in Philippians 2, you have what is thought to be the hymn of Christ. How do you know that these are hymns, creeds, and confessions? Well, uh, let me again uh, read to you from uh, Craig Blomberg, New Testament scholar, Denver Seminary. He says, numerous texts of highly poetic Greek filled with tightly packed formulations of fundamental Christian doctrine in styles that often differ from those of the epistle writers themselves and which seem to be set apart as self-contained entities within the letters in which they appear prove likely candidates for early Christian creeds or confessions of faith. Let me, let me explain what that means. So you're reading through Philippians or Colossians or 1 Peter, and you discover, whoa, the language has changed here. It moves from Paul or Peter's kind of regular uh, writing in, in terms of a letter, and the language becomes very lyrical. It becomes poetic, and it's, and it's tightly packed with formulations of Christian doctrine. And, and so it seems like well, where'd this come from? Why, why is it here? And it's these very uh, departure from Peter and Paul's regular writings that have led scholars to conclude that uh, these happened much earlier. Now, let me also make this point. Um, lots of times as evangelicals, we, we have such a great love for the Bible, and rightfully so. It's the Word of God. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, it is without error. For us evangelical Protestants, it is the final court of appeals in all matters dealing with belief and practice. So we have a very strong view of Scripture and its inspiration, its authority. Sometimes, though, we may not appreciate that the early church didn't have immediately the Scriptures. It took a while for the apostles to write the Gospels. Uh, uh, it, the epistles appeared beforehand, and in a few minutes I'll give you a little timeline here. Uh, but the early church, the Jesus's Bible was the Hebrew Bible. It was the Tanakh. It was the Old Testament. And um, once the apostles got older, I think uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they realized we're not going to be around forever. We need to record uh, our record about uh, Jesus of Nazareth, about the, the Son of God, the Messiah, and uh, they recorded the Gospels. I, I like what uh, one uh, New Testament scholar said. He said that uh, the reason the Gospels were not penned immediately was that the disciples were more interested in saving souls. They were about preaching and and teaching, and, and the recording of Scripture took a little longer. And yet, it's important to realize that the early Christians sang songs. <clears throat> they sang hymns. They either sang or chanted hymns, uh, some discussion about how those songs were, were different, and they made confessional statements. Now, now again, some, some of our, our evangelical friends 
they're a little put off by creeds and uh, things like this. You know, what's this Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed or Athanasian Creed? Maybe they feel rather uncomfortable. I, I just want to re recite scripture. Well, the point I make is there were creeds. First, there are creeds in scripture, and there were creeds before there was scripture. In the Old Testament, the most central creed of the of the Jewish people, the the uh, uh, Shema, Deuteronomy six four. Hear with something you do with your ear, H-E-A-R. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, well, that may be the most recited passage of the entire Tanakh or the Old Testament. It's recited twice a day by, by the Jewish community. Uh, but even in the New Testament, I mean, even this word, even this expression, Jesus is Lord. Uh, that appears to be an ancient uh, creedal statement. And so this idea of formulation of creeds, I want our people to, to value them and, and to appreciate them. Uh, I have a couple of questions. Go ahead. Um, the, the Old Testament that the, the apostles certainly used, and I'm asking the question, did Jesus, Jesus use it also? Uh, was the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. When Jesus preached, did he preach in Greek, or did he preach in Aramaic, or Hebrew, or, and, and part of my question is coming back to the, these creeds, were they in Aramaic, and then were they translated to serve as a quote within these Greek letters? Can you give us some insight? Yeah. Well, uh, that's a little bit of a challenging question in, in the context of what language did uh, Jesus speak or what, which particular text he would have used. Uh, many scholars, uh, for example, would say that the language of Judea for Jesus would have been Aramaic. Uh, and there is, uh, e even in the New Testament, which was written in Koine Greek or Common Greek, uh, there are places where scholars point out that, you know, the, the way it's written may uh, give us some indication that originally it was presented in Aramaic. Of course, it raises fascinating questions like, uh, was Jesus multilingual? Uh, I think there are, there are many scholars who think that Jesus would have known uh, Hebrew, he would have known Aramaic, he may have known some Greek. Uh, uh, so I think that that's a, a realistic expectation. Um, in terms of the, uh, the Hebrew Bible, uh, of course, Jesus could, have, could read and study the Hebrew Bible as, uh, as all males would have been introduced to it. And of course, the uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees would have even had formal training. And of course, that's that's an extraordinary thing about Jesus. He, uh, even as a 12-year-old, uh, he's able to converse with biblical scholars who spent years uh, being trained in, in the particular uh, Hebrew uh, Bible and the Hebrew law. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, I think that uh, Jesus could have 
read or spoke multiple languages. He would have been familiar with the um, the Hebrew Bible, but he would have also been aware that uh, uh, it's been presented broadly in, in the Greek language. And so that makes sense. Now, um, of course, we have to think a little bit, uh, how, how do we move from the Hebrew Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God Almighty, uh, to this idea of Jesus being Lord? Well, kurios is the Greek equivalent uh, to the Hebrew uh, Yahweh or Lord. And uh, of course, you kurios could be used for other contexts too, but there are clear statements in the New Testament it seems where Jesus is called Lord, and it's it's in the context of him being Lord God Almighty. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Jesus is Lord. I mean, that's something I've heard uh, in an evangelical context. Well, that that's a creedal statement. And that was recited by Christians long before it was ever penned in the New Testament. Well, let me let me then take a look here a little bit at some of these passages in a little bit more depth. Let's go to Philippians 2, uh, which again has uh, been described as the hymn of Christ. Uh, Paul says, who, though he was in the form of God, morphe is the word form, though he was in the form, the essence of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, we've got some Old Testament there. Uh, that knee bending and tongue confessing, that's the book of Isaiah chapter 45. And by the way, the context of that is the only being in which you bend the knee and confess the tongue, according to Isaiah, is Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God Almighty. But what does this hymn do? It applies the idea that worship, uh, which is exclusively to be given to God in a Jewish context, is in this hymn applied to Jesus. And it uses the word Lord. And in the context, it's clearly a reference to Jesus being, being divine. By the way, I think that this is a very powerful way of talking to people who happen to belong to heretical sects like Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I've been talking to witnesses for a long time, and again, there are many times where they come and it's inconvenient, and I I, I don't have the time or the opportunity to do it, but I try to do it as often as I can. And for many years, uh, you know, they would, they have their selects texts, and I have my texts, and they would say, you know, I'd say, well, Jesus is God. They'd say, no, he's not. And I say, yes, he is. And I'd quote John 1, and I would quote, uh, you know, I and the Father, we are one, uh, etc. 
I then I then began to take a different tact with them. I said, "Look, um, I said, why don't we? Why don't you come back when you have a little bit more time? And what we can do is we'll we'll take ninety minutes. Um, so so you can talk for thirty minutes, and I can talk for thirty minutes, and then we can ask each other questions." And what I began doing is this, I, I took a different tact. I said, now in the Old Testament, and I'll use the word Jehovah for their, for, you know, for their benefit, their comfortability. I'd say in the Old Testament, there are certain things that are said only about Jehovah. But in the New Testament, they're applied to Jesus. For example, in Isaiah 45, it says that only to Jehovah Will people bend the knee and confess the tongue? And I go through other areas where there are things that are said only about Jehovah, but amazingly in the New Testament, they're said about Jesus. So if, if only Jehovah is to be worshipped, yet we're told in the New Testament that Jesus is to be worshipped, then Jesus must be God. Jesus must be Jehovah. Now, don't get me wrong, there is no silver bullet. There's no argument or apologetic or biblical statement that's going to work for everybody. Uh, I can only tell you that when I've when I've approached it that way, when I've this is what the Old Testament says about Jehovah. Now these qualities, titles, and characteristics in the New Testament are applied to Jesus. A number of the Jehovah's Witnesses looked at me in a sense of, wow, there was a pregnant pause. Now, where they went, I don't know. But let's go to Philippians 2. Uh, this, this lyrical, poetic, highly condensed doctrinal statement in Philippians 2, uh, Paul may not have penned this uh, in the original. Uh, he may have taken this as a hymn that was sung by Christians that he only later bumped into after his conversion. And what's fascinating about this is notice that it's highly exalted in its Christology. So rather than the deity of Jesus or worshiping Jesus, taking a long period of time, going through evolution, maybe to the classical statement of Chalcedon in AD 451. No, uh, if this is a hymn, and if uh, this goes back to the primitive church, this was something that the earliest Christians who were all Jewish were reciting. Uh, and so I, I see this as a, as a powerful refutation of that kind of liberal progressive uh, point of view. Let's look at another example in Colossians 1, uh, verses 15 through 20. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV, by the way. I like the NIV a lot, but I prefer the 1984 NIV, but I really like the ESV. Uh, uh, here it reads in English, of course, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn means preeminent one. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Again, this is Colossians 1, and uh, it's thick. It's highly concentrated, lyrical, poetic. It's teaching us Christian theology 101, if you will. It's, it's telling us that Jesus has the qualities of, of Yahweh. Uh, he's the creator. He existed before all things. Uh, he created that which is visible and invisible. Um, he's given the titles and described the way Jews would refer to God. Uh, don't be thrown by firstborn. He wasn't the first one born. It means preeminent one. Uh, but in verse 19, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Well, we have the incarnation right there, God in human flesh. Uh, again, this, this may have been a doctrinal statement. This may have been something that Christians would have memorized. Um, when I was Catholic, we learned certain creeds. Uh, later, when I became a Protestant, I attended Lutheran, Reformed, and Anglican churches. We would recite the creeds as a way of summarizing these elements. And if you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, some of it uh, has biblical words themselves. And so here we have another example of what appears to be um, an oral statement long before it was ever written that takes us back to the very beginning of Jewish Christianity. Uh, let's look at one more, and there may be others. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, Peter writes, or quotes, for Christ died for, for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Uh, in it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. Next verse, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at, the right, as it, is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Well, again, to be at the right hand of God uh, is to have the authority of God. And in a Jewish context, uh, there's no one like that other than the Lord himself. And so this, this may have also been uh, a, a type of statement that was intended to kind of summarize uh, Christian doctrine. And so what we may not appreciate as Bible students is how the New Testament was put together 
and what sources that Paul and Peter may have been writing, uh, writing down. They, they may have used these as oral confessions or hymns. And again, uh, they contain the most exalted statements about Jesus found in the New Testament. Now, let, let, me, um, let me go to a little bit of a timeline, and then we can come back and look at a number of issues. I mentioned in a previous program that Jesus's dates, maybe he was born somewhere between 4 and 2 BC. Some people try to stretch it back to 6, but I, I, I don't think that, I think that's too early. So Jesus is born sometime, some, sometime between 4 and 2 BC, wasn't born in AD 1. The calendar doesn't get it just right. Uh, and he probably dies in 30 or 33 AD. Let's choose 30. Um, so he's born 4 to 2 BC. His death and resurrection happened in 30 AD. Uh, the first part of the New Testament, Paul's, uh, let, let me actually mention Paul's conversion. It's likely that Paul was converted uh, sometime maybe 31 or 32, a year, maybe two years after Jesus's death and resurrection. Uh, Paul's letters start to be written in 47. Galatians is a good example of that. They extend to 62. So these are epistles. These are the letters that he's writing to the churches or to various individuals. So that would happen 47 to 62 probably stopped in 62 because that was about the time Paul and Peter suffered Neronian persecution. Uh, Nero was uh, uh, very anti-Christianity, uh, and so the two apostles, Peter and Paul, it is believed died in uh, the early 60s. Now, the synoptic gospels, and we call them synoptic, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic because they see together. There's a lot of commonality in Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke. Um, again, it, it's controversial. Uh, somebody like a Bart Ehrman would say, well, what you evangelicals and fundamentalists don't appreciate is there, those gospels were anonymous. There was no name connected. You know, like when Paul says, I, Paul, wrote this epistle. They, they were given anonymous, but of course, um, church tradition, which I value and, and I think everyone should, tells us that uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were either apostles themselves, such as the, the case of Matthew, but um, in terms of Mark, uh, Mark, John Mark probably was... Uh, took Peter's preaching points, talking points, and produced the gospel. And Luke, he says he was not an, an apostle of Jesus, but he researched it, and uh, he wrote both Luke and Acts, and he had a very intimate friend who uh, had connection with the risen Jesus. His name was Paul. So uh, we have either uh, eyewitnesses or close associates of eyewitnesses who are the authors of Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, the Gospels. By the way, if, if, if this was intended 
to be made up. That is, if if the apostles or maybe early Christians were trying to uh, present the Gospels as being, uh, you know, really inspired, uh, they probably wouldn't have they probably wouldn't have picked Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, but they did uh, because the, it's actually true that Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote these Gospels. And we shouldn't discount them because they may not have been direct eyewitnesses. They were closely associated with those who were eyewitnesses. So John's Gospel, let's accept the more progressive date that maybe it was 80 to 90. So maybe the New Testament doesn't appear until 90 to 100. Of course, some people would say, look, if Jesus died in 30 AD and the New Testament is not completed until 90 or 100, then you've got, wow, uh, you've got 60 to 70 years. Uh, maybe some uh, legends, uh, maybe myth has crept in. But I think what, what people fail to appreciate is that the epistles appear in the 40s, 50s. Um, and if we go back to these hymns, these confessional statements, they go back to maybe 30 or 31. And they're oral, they're, they're lyrical, they're poetic. And if Peter and Paul took those confessional statements, oral confessional or songs, and weave them into their, into their epistles, then these hymns and confessional statements are older than the, book, the New Testament books they appear in. And again, what do, what do these earliest statements say about the identity of Jesus? That he is, uh, he is, we read you, uh, these statements, um, Philippians 2.6, though he was in the form of God, Colossians 1.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 1 Peter 3.21 and 22, Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Well, well, who could have uh, angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him? This is a reference to the divine. So we have good reasons to reject the idea that the early apostles and followers of Jesus didn't believe in a divine Jesus, and this was a later uh, innovation brought about by Gentiles who lived hundreds of years later to kind of vote in Jesus as God. No, the earliest sources of historic Christianity testify to the divinity of Christ. Thoughts, yes. comments, guys? These are kind of like quotes in a sense. Uh, if I'm writing a letter to someone and I have a statement by someone else, that uh, I think uh, encapsulates what I want to say, you put it in as a quote. And of course, the style of that quote is going to reflect the person who wrote it, not the, not the style that I use in my letter. 
and uh, so it, it it fits. That that's a very powerful point. I I know uh, the pastor of my church. Uh, he's the rector of our Anglican congregation. He loves hymns. Uh, he knows them uh, almost encyclopedic, um, and he will quote you know a hymn. Um, well, exactly your point. Um, these are like quotes. These are like hymns. They're confessional statements that are weaved into the biblical text. And I think it, it fits really well. Yes. Yeah. Joe, comments or questions? No, keep going. Tracking okay. along. All right. Uh, let me simply repeat a couple of these quotations. Uh, Larry Hurtado is, was an ancient historian and a New Testament scholar. Um, he says this uh, about uh, these hymns and creeds. He says, quote, I simply want to emphasize that the origins of the worship of Jesus are so early that practically any evolutionary approach is rendered invalid as historical explanation. Uh, another quote from his book, Hurtado, How on Earth Did Jesus Become a God? He says, the evidence for the speed and early nature in which the primitive church worshiped Jesus as God is a more explosively quick phenomenon, a religious development that was more like a volcanic eruption. And then uh, he even says that this is a, uh, this early high Christology, it's a paradigm shift. It's a, it's a new perspective. You've heard of the new perspective of Paul? Well, uh, biblical scholars sometimes come to differing perspectives. I, I respectfully disagree with N.T. Wright's new perspective on Paul, but I think this is very illuminating. Hurtado recognizes, quote, a new perspective in the study of the origins of Christianity and the place of Jesus in earliest Christian faith and practice. Well, uh, that leads, I think, to some apologetic takeaways. So now is the so what? So what? What does this mean? I think it means three important points in terms of the truth of Christianity. Number one, while the New Testament books take us back to the apostolic age, the primitive creeds, confessions, and hymns contained in the New Testament press back to the earliest period of Jewish Christianity. Now, again, let, let me make that statement one more time. Um, I talk with even my evangelical brothers and sisters on Facebook, and, you know, I'll put a creed, the Apostles' Creed, Athanasian Creed, um, the, uh, the Creed from Nicaea, and sometimes my evangelical friends might say, well, yeah, the, the, the creeds are okay, but why don't you quote scripture? Why, why these Greek and Latin creeds from the Roman Catholic Church or the Anglican or Lutheran or Eastern Orthodox Church? I remind them that there were creeds, there are creeds in scripture. In fact, there were creeds pronounced, sang, uh, before there was a New Testament. What we discover here is that the hymn in Philippians 2, the theological uh, confessions in, in Colossians 1 and 1 Peter, uh, these take us back to that very early point of 
of Jewish Christianity, right, right from the get-go. And, and what happens? Bang, a volcanic explosion. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God in human form. Jesus is the fullness of God in human flesh. These exalted statements. Okay, that's our first apologetic takeaway. Second one, these primitive creeds, confessions, and hymns illustrate that the earliest Christians viewed Jesus as divine and served to falsify the claim that belief in Jesus's deity went through an extended period of evolution. I like what Larry Hurtado says. This is a new perspective on the studies of the origin of Christology. Um, this is cutting edge. Uh, and, and so I believe Jesus was the God-man because the apostles taught that, and they believed it because they received it from Jesus himself. That's our second apologetic takeaway. Number three, the earliest Christians, though staunch Jewish monotheists. Now, I want you to think a little bit about this, this apologetic takeaway. The earliest Christians, though staunch Jewish monotheists, nevertheless almost immediately worshiped Jesus Christ as an extension of Yahweh. That takes, it's important to unpackage it. Remember, remember Jews are not Hindus. Uh, they're not pagans. They don't believe in many gods. They don't believe the universe is God. Uh, they, they don't worship human beings. They worship Yahweh Elohim and no one else. And uh, they're willing to die for that. They're, they're so honoring of God that they don't even want to say his name, Yahweh. So they abbreviate it. Uh, they are very protective of their monotheistic view. But here's the, here's the strange thing. The very people who would be the most unlikely to worship what appears to be a human being is these Jewish monotheists. They fundamentally had every reason to reject the idea that Jesus was God. I mean, Paul did. When he saw of Tarsus, he comes along and says, wow, this is the worst I've ever seen. These people are worshiping a human being and claiming to be Jewish. Uh, he says, this, gotta be, this has got to be stopped. This is a heresy. Uh, and, and, you know, he is a, he's kind of the a Jewish Taliban. You know, this is worthy of death. And yet, the same thing that convinced Peter, James, and John that they should worship Jesus is what converted Saul to Paul. He encountered the risen Christ. And so the earliest apostles, um, Peter, James, John, and Paul, they, uh, they were all Jews, but they came to worship Jesus as the God-man. And, and that's just, uh, I'm just so excited about this. I, I love to talk about this because I find it so encouraging and so strengthening. And it tells me not only what I read in scripture has solid basis, but the things that I have been taught in, in historic Christianity is in fact uh, based, that has a solid biblical base. Now, guys, I, I'd, I'd kind of like to 
finish our second program here by kind of returning to some things we we said in the previous program. And again, I, I want to encourage our listeners to go back and listen to that second program. You, there's a lot we've covered here that is similar to what we covered there, but I, I want to kind of bring us back. And I so I want to talk a little bit about the importance of the incarnation. Um, remember, the word incarnation come is a Latin word, so it's not a Greek word, so it doesn't appear in the New Testament. But the word sarx uh, is used of Jesus. It says, and the word became flesh, uh, sarx agenita in Greek. Um, Jesus is God who takes upon a, a human nature. Um, and of course, we talked a little bit about the incarnation means that Jesus is two what's and one who. Uh, in contrast to the Trinity, where there's one what, one divine what, essence, nature, three who's, three persons. In the incarnation, Jesus is a single who. He's not two people. Even though he has a divine and human nature, he's not two people. He's one person, and so he's two what's and, and one who. Why is the incarnation so important? Let me list a, a couple reasons here. Well, right at the top of my list is we know the Trinity in light of the incarnation. That is, um, it's because Jesus is God in human flesh that he then shows us his relationship to the Spirit and to the Father. And I like to say, when you have Jesus, you have the Trinity, because who is Jesus? He is the Spirit-anointed Son of the Father. Spirit anointed son of the father. And in Romans 14 and Rome, uh, excuse me, John 14 and John 15, you have this triad of names, uh, father, son, spirit, um, God, Lord, spirit. And the names are used interchangeably with the same kind of unity and, and equality. So we derive the Trinity from the incarnation. Number two, the incarnation fulfills the, the promise of the Imago Dei. I, th I think it's very powerful. Uh, Anthony Hukuma, who was a Dutch Reformed uh, Christian, brilliant uh, theologian, um, he said that uh, the reason God made human beings in his image is because God always intended to become one of us. And taking, taking a human nature uh, that is made in the image of God facilitated that. I, I remember when I first read that in Hukuba, I was like, whoa. I mean, that gave me a time of devotion and worship because of that. Number three, the incarnation validates the dignity of humanity. You know, we live at a time where there are some political parties who would like to have abortion right up to the very birth of the child. Uh, where is the dignity of humanity? Um, we would assert that it's, it's found in the Old and New Testament. It's found in being made in the image of God. Uh, humans have dignity. They have value because they bear the divine uh, image. Well, I'll tell you another thing that shows the dignity of humanity, um, that God would take a human nature and become man, shows that the human nature is valuable. Uh, one of the uh, uh, Apollo astronauts said it's, you know, a great thing for a man to walk on the moon, 
It's a greater thing for God to walk on the earth. Um, wow. So, you know, we are fallen. We, we are image bearers, but we have experienced the fall. So there, the, the image has been effaced, but it hasn't been erased. And, and again, it tells you the value. I think it also illustrates the uniqueness and exceptional nature of, of humanity. Uh, number four, the incarnation allows Christ to reconcile God and man. If, if he is both God and man, he can speak for God and man. He's the only one that can offer a sacrifice because he, because he is both God and man and represents them. He can bring them together. And then fifth, the incarnation makes Jesus, our high priest, a sympathetic intercessor. Um, my point here is that, you know, sometimes we wonder, well, how could God, an, an infinite, eternal, spiritual being, how can God know suffering? He can know about suffering because he's omniscient, but how could he know what it is to suffer? Well, the second person of the Trinity took a human nature and in his humanity suffered and died. So God is sympathetic to us. He, of course, Jesus's human nature is different than ours. He is, uh, he's fully divine, but not solely divine. So he is fully human and fully divine. We're, we're fully human, but we are solely human. Uh, but we're also, he is not sinful. Um, and so those are some of the points that I, I often make. And now, then, just, just one thought. Go ahead. Go ahead. The, at least some uh, Christian communities uh, have a, a, an interpretation of Peter's statement that when we became Christians, we became partakers of the divine nature. So could, would it be fair to say, if that's a correct interpretation, that we as Christians now have two natures, a human nature and at least in some sense, a divine nature. We're born again after all. Yeah, that, uh, that takes us into an area that uh, it's easy to begin talking and hard to stop. It's such, <laughs> a, it's such a difficult area. I, I think as long as we're willing to say, Dave, that uh, partakers of the divine nature does not mean that we become God. Yes. It doesn't mean we become uh, four, five, six, seven now persons in the Trinity, but that that we interact with God. We have a saving relationship uh, with him and we receive the new birth. And so I don't, I think you're right. Uh, I just I just trying to shut the doors where it might be confusing. One more topic I want to address, and I, I can only do it uh, fairly briefly. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Jesus invoking the divine prerogatives. I mean, again, uh, when I talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, when I talk to skeptics, I will say that you know, during Jesus's ministry, he engaged in functions that were exclusively reserved for God alone uh, in a context of strict Jewish monotheism. Uh, you have the five activities 
that were considered blasphemous for anyone other than God. Number one, uh, Jesus expressed his authority to forgive sins, even sins that are not committed uh, against him personally. So he has a prerogative reserved for God alone. And I'm, of course, here I'm thinking of Mark 2, uh, where Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And they say, well, but who can forgive sin but God alone? Aha. Jesus acts as if he can act on God's behalf. Two, Jesus accepted worship uh, from other human beings, a prerogative reserved for God alone. Uh, Matthew 28, 16 through 17. Um, you know, they saw him, they worshiped him, unlike Paul and Barnabas, who said, you know, when the pagans began to worship them because a miracle was performed in their presence, Paul and Barnabas says, don't worship us, we're just human beings. Jesus uh, seems to embrace the idea that even as a Jew, uh, that he could be appropriately worshipped. Now, a theological point I often like to bring up with, in the context of Jehovah's Witnesses, if you believe Jesus is not God, uh, if you believe he's some kind of creature, some kind of secondary creation, then then it means that all of Christendom are idolaters because we worship Jesus. Okay, number, uh, number three, Jesus possessed the ability to hear and answer prayer, a prerogative reserved for God alone. Um, Jesus says, ask anything you want, and I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I hear it. I'll do it. Four, Jesus exercised the power and authority to raise the dead, a prerogative reserved for God alone. And then fifthly, that he's, I mean, think of, think of this. Jesus comes along and he says uh, that he has the power to judge humanity. Wow. Uh, doesn't, that, doesn't that raise questions? This guy thinks he can forgive your sin. He can raise the dead. He can judge humanity. He can do the things that only God can do. I mean, if if this is actually, um, if, if these are actual biographies, first century biographies of Jesus, then I think I think C.S. Lewis, Lewis is right. Uh, he's either Lord or a liar uh, or a madman, right? Lord, liar, lunatic. Uh, in my book, without a doubt, I expand them. Was he a man, myth, madman, menace, mystic, Martian, or Messiah? I always tell Joe, it took me a long time to come up with all those M words. <laughs> but you, you, do, you do come to this issue, the shocking alternative. And, and so I develop into a little argument. Premise one, whoever does the things that only God can do is God. Premise two, Jesus does the things that only God can do. Conclusion, therefore, Jesus is God. I think that's the process that Peter, James, and John, and Paul went through. Well, there are only certain things God can do, but Jesus does the things that only God can do. Therefore, Jesus is God, and we should worship him. And I think these early confessions, hymns, and creedal statements, they buttress that idea that the that that classical or historic Christianity, call it biblical Christianity, if you prefer, that it, it is uh, the authentic 
statements. It is apostolic Christianity. How about some uh, resources, Joe? Do you think maybe others would like to uh, follow up on some of these things? Sure. Give some recommendations. By the way, if you have a study Bible, um, whether you have a New, New International Version uh, or you have a NES version or New American Standard, if you have notes in your Bible, go back and look at some of these. Um, I, I know in the NIV Study Bible and in the NASB, they have a long discussion of Philippians 2 being a hymn. They talk about Colossians. Uh, they tell us a little bit about uh, what biblical scholars now think of these creeds and hymns. So you can do that. Uh, I mentioned Ralph P. Martin, uh, a Catholic, a conservative Catholic scholar, a New Testament scholar. He has a book, New Testament Foundations, A Guide for Christian Students. Uh, I have that on my shelf. Uh, I, we mentioned Craig Blomberg, a New Testament scholar who I think is emeritus professor now at Denver Seminary. He has a little book and very readable. He has a lot of scholarly books, but this would be a place to begin. His book, Making Sense of the New Testament. And then uh, Larry Hurtado has written on this in scholarly journals, but he has a pretty readable book entitled, How on Earth Did Jesus Become a God? Uh, historical questions about the earliest uh, beliefs of, to, of Jesus. So that, that, is a, that also is a, one of his more readable books. And then I've written on this topic in God Among Sages. I try to summarize all this data. I try to write about it in a way that we've talked about it here on the program. And then in my book, Without a Doubt, I have two chapters uh, uh, devoted to uh, the apologetic question of who is Jesus and then the doctrinal question of uh, who is Jesus. And, and by the way, guys, I don't know if I've told you this. But uh, my book, without a doubt, has now been translated into Urdu, U-R-D-U, which is the national language of Pakistan. Mm. And um, it, it has, it's almost at the end of production. And so probably by the time the listeners hear this, we, we may have some Urdu copies if you read Urdu. And uh, I'm excited about that. I can't tell you how much uh, what was such a good feeling I have because uh, without a doubt was translated a number of years ago into the Indonesian language, now into to Urdu, the two large the two largest populations of Muslims in the world is found in the country number one Indonesia and secondly in Pakistan. Now wow. Christians could read an apologetic book and mm. uh, and I think it's wonderful. I'm very thankful to the to the people who worked hard to make that happen. Yeah, that is exciting news. Thanks for sharing it with us. And thank you for listening to this podcast. Let us know what you think. If you have comments and questions, please pass those along. You can reach out to Ken via Twitter at RTB underscore case samples. Many of you are finding Ken on social media, uh, Facebook as well. So glad to, to get your comments there as well. In fact, here are a couple of them that have come in. People have been reading your books, uh, Ken, that you've recommended, and 
have spoken well of them. Here's one. It says, Ken, I've used your book, God Among Sages, for more than one paper in intercultural studies. Great stuff. That's from S. Justin Woodstock. And here's another brief comment. I read the intro and first couple of chapters of your seven truths that changed the world this morning at Starbucks. Very impressed. Thanks for recommending it to me. Kenny Beck. Great. Wonderful. Thank you. It's good to know that people are uh, reading your books, even on a coffee break, right, Ken? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Okay. I, I, by the way, uh, Joe, you know this. I, I write my books in such a way that they get better if you drink coffee. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, again, uh, reach out to Ken via Twitter at RTB underscore K samples, and we'll be glad to receive your comment. Get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.